Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about... Uh, Look, just a whole bunch of different things. It is episode 200. We made it. And uh, with the precedent established in episode 100 today, we'll be doing a bit of a grab bag episode, getting across a whole lot of smaller, shorter stories that wouldn't have made up an entire episode. These are topics that have been sent in by alert listeners that I haven't been able to spin into, you know, I mean, episode's supposed to be 30 minutes long. That was the plan when I started the podcast. Now, you know, they're obviously very uh, often longer than 40 or even 50 minutes. Um, but today, six shorter stories for you to enjoy uh, as part of the, uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we made it, I say we, I guess, I mean, I did most of the work, in fairness. I mean, it is a, it's a collaborative effort, certainly. I'm not trying to take anything away from you, dear listener, the fact that you tune in every week to, uh, to listen to my Dom podcast, certainly very appreciated. But if we are going to sort of divvy up the credit, you know, let's... Let's be honest, and I mean, we can call a spade a spade and say that I've perhaps done a little more work than other people involved in the podcast. But look, it's very, uh, it's very humbling uh, to be here, nearly four years in, 200 episodes in. It's very humbling to be here, but at the same time, I'm filled with pride. It's, very, it's a very strange mixture of, of conflicting emotions because I'm humbled that thousands of people listen every week to me, you know, having a chat about whatever's taken my interest this week. Uh, but then it's also, I don't know, a source of pride for me that this podcast has lasted as long as it, as it has, that it's, it's, it's been, you know, I don't want to blow my own trumpet too much here, but it's, it's been a success. And I say, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I started by saying, oh, maybe I should be getting all the credit, but I guess this podcast would not really be much without you, the listener. So maybe you do get a bit more credit than I thought. Anyway, Enough of the sentimental nonsense, my friends. Let's get into the cold, hard business of very serious history here. We're going to be getting across, of course, six stories, as I said. And all of these were popularly suggested topics. These are ones that have come in on the email uh, a fair few times. And look, I did my best to track down the people who have suggested that didn't get all the names in there, but I've done my best. If you were one of the people who suggested one of these topics and you're not credited, I do apologize. Uh, but uh, again, just going through the old inbox, finding all the topics that have been uh, sent in that wouldn't perhaps hold out across a 40-minute episode, but still, nonetheless, very entertaining. So let's get stuck into episode 200 of Half-Assed History with six more short stories. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1788 for our first story today, the story of the Battle of Caransipes. This is a uh, a very popular topic suggestion that's been sent in by people like Tom Mann, Marcus, and you know other people I couldn't find. Sorry about that. Um, now, this battle, I have to be honest with you, may have never happened. Uh, some people hold out even today that it's you know just a bit of a myth, but there are plenty of historians that actually stand by the commonly told story, and it is an absolutely terrific one, let me tell you. It's the story of one of the most embarrassing military encounters in history, when the Austrian army fought and defeated itself. In September 1788, the Austrian Empire, or the Habsburg monarchy, if you want to give it a slightly more correct name, the Habsburgs, they're at war with the Ottoman Empire. Now, this war, it's got a couple of different names, the Austro-Turkish War or the Habsburg-Ottoman War, whatever you want to call it. It was what provides the backdrop 
for this battle, the Battle of, Kar- of Karansevis, right? The Austrian army, the Habsburgs, they're fighting the Turkish army for control of the Danube River out in modern-day Romania. Uh, this is where you find Karansevis even today. But here's the thing. The Austrian army, as we're calling them, the Habsburgs, they're not all Austrian at all, not even close to it, given the huge area that is controlled by the Habsburgs, in, you know, that are, that are based in, uh, in Austria. Their army was made up of not just Austrians, but Czechs and Serbs and Croats and Germans and even people from places like Poland and France. There were, were huge cultural and, and linguistic differences between all of these soldiers as they were out there fighting the Ottomans. And this is a very important detail. Keep it in mind because it'll come up later. But for now, let's skip to the night of the 21st of September 1788 and see what this multicultural military force is up to. While the the main force of this army, uh, about 100,000 people in all, was bunkered down, setting up an encampment in Karansabis, a, a group of mounted Habsburg hussars were patrolling around the town, scouting for the Turkish forces that they suspected to be nearby. So these, uh, these reconnaissance uh, troops are going around, seeing what they can find. But as night falls, the soldiers, they don't come across their Ottoman enemies as they were perhaps expecting, but instead a group of friendly travellers. Now, these travellers, they invite the soldiers to join them and offer to sell them uh, a fair bit of booze. They've got the schnapps on the go and the soldiers are more than happy to, uh, to come and partake. So these soldiers, they sit down, happily accept the schnapps that are on offer from these travellers and they get absolutely pissed as chooks. It's not long before they are falling down drunk, these blokes having a great time. But then, after, these, uh, after all these hussars are all drunk, as I say... Who do you think turned up to ruin the night? If you guessed the Turks, you couldn't be more wrong. It was not the Turks who turned up. It was more Habsburg soldiers. This time footmen, a a, a detachment of infantry, right? Anyway, these soldiers, they turn up and they go, oh, what you got there, boys? Found a bit of schnapps. Lovely. We'd we'd love some of that. The Hussars, however, they've already gotten the sauce. They're all half cut and they are not in a sharing mood whatsoever. They refuse to divvy up the schnapps with their colleagues who have just arrived. And, you know, perhaps surprisingly, given how drunk people are usually so adept at conflict resolution, things start to get a little bit heated between the infantry and the cavalry. These hussars, they jealously surrounded their booze. They defended it from the infantrymen who wanted to get on it. And it wasn't long before actual factual fighting broke out between these two divisions of the Austrian army. And then shots started being, shots started being fired, right? Now... These shots were heard by the main contingent of the of the Habsburg army back in Karansabis, and they very reasonably assume that their scouting parties have found the Ottomans that they were looking for and have now come under attack. Which I mean is is at least half true. They have come under attack, but you know not from the Ottomans. But the Habsburgs back in Karansabis, that they, they don't know that. However, I mean they don't know who's attacking whom. And so they raise the alarm by shouting, Turks, Turks. And suddenly the entire army is scrambling to face what they think is a surprise attack from the Ottomans, racing to mount a defence and continuing to raise the alarm with uh, with all this shouting. And as the shouting spreads amongst, you know, again, a force of Austrians and Habsburgs that is 100,000 strong, guess who hears the 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 alarm being raised? Guess who hears the, the all these shouts of Turks, Turks? Of course, the drunken hussars, who immediately assume that their allies back in Karansabis are under attack from the Ottomans. 
So, still drunk as several skunks, they leap back onto their horses. They charge back to the Habsburg encampment to give aid to, you know, their their colleagues who they think are under attack. And just think about how this looks for those in Karansabis. The alarm has been raised. They think the, Ottoman, the Ottomans are, you know, are staging this, this midnight attack. And then out of the dark, moonless night charges a brigade of horsemen ready to fight. So, so what do they do? The Habsburgs in Karansabis, they draw up, ready to fight all this cavalry, defend their encampment, and they start shooting at the approaching horsemen. And so, thinking that the Habsburg camp has already been overrun by Ottomans, the drunken hussars start shooting back. Now, apparently some of the officers realised the mistake that both sides were making, and, and they began to shout, halt, halt, which is obviously German for stop, as I mentioned before, not everyone fighting for the Habsburgs speaks German, and they misheard the cries of halt as Turkish battle cries of Allah. So the fighting only got worse, the wounded and the dead begin to pile up as the Habsburg army fought itself at the Battle of, Kar- of Karansabis, and the fighting continued through the night. By the time it was over, this had become one of the worst friendly fire incidents in history. It was a truly humiliating and also quite tragic blunder for the Habsburgs. Over a thousand of their troops were wounded and upwards of a hundred of them were killed, all without the enemy even showing up. And when the Ottomans did finally arrive two days later, they found the remains of a hastily abandoned Habsburg camp with the dead and some wounded that had been left behind. No doubt, you know, the Ottomans were scratching their heads at the absolute freebie they'd received. And, uh, you know, took the town, they took Karansabis completely undefended, captured it without the slightest issue. One of, if not the easiest victories in military history. The Ottomans won the Battle of Karansabis without even showing up after half the Austrian army got drunk and fought itself. I've had so many listeners get in touch with me about Robert Liston, a surgeon that was famous for his incredible speed on the operating table, although not necessarily his skill, as uh, one operation of his is said to have had a 300% mortality rate. That's right, if it's true, Liston once set up to operate, operate on a patient and instead managed to kill not just the patient, but two other people as well. Not exactly what you want from a surgeon. Listeners like Jesse Sutherland, Nash Kelly, Eric Whedon and and Jill Kriegerskorter, they all wrote in asking me to get across Robert Liston. And so here's his tale. He was born in 1794 in Eccles in Scotland, and he studied medicine before becoming a fully qualified surgeon in the year 1828. Now, you know, back in these days, you didn't have anaesthetic. You didn't have ways to make patients more comfortable during very traumatic operations. And so More than anything else, speed was highly valued in a surgeon. Given how dangerous surgery was in those days, getting it done quickly, you know, significantly increased a patient's chance of actually surviving the operation, not to mention the fact that they weren't lying there in agony for ages and ages while a surgeon chopped them to bits. So, Liston, he's quick. He is bloody quick. He's so quick, in fact, that he became famous for the speed with with which he could perform these operations. And when word spread of Liston's incredible ability to get a bit of surgery done quickly, you know, without drawing out the pain and the suffering of a patient, people flocked to him. 
to have procedures done. He started off in Edinburgh and then had to move. He moved from Edinburgh to, to London and never had any shortage of patients or, it seems, spectators either. There were people who would come in and watch him work amazed at how quickly he could, you know, for example, chop someone's leg off. Um, these days, of course, uh, something as serious as a leg amputation would involve careful, exacting surgery alongside, most important of all, anaesthetic. Uh, but back then, you would either be strapped down to a table or you'd be held down by strong men. You'd be given something to bite so you didn't injure your mouth or jaw while going through the pain. And then you would have to bear witness, fully conscious, to someone like Liston sawing your leg off. But Liston's promise was that he would do it quickly. And this was, as I say, an enormous draw card for a surgeon because if you need to have your leg chopped off, you'd rather get it over with nice and quickly indeed. So there's one reported occasion of, of Liston performing this exact procedure, a leg amputation, uh, with such confidence in his ability to get it done quickly uh, that he called out, as as the patient was was held down and as Liston picked up his bone saw, he turned to the assembled onlookers and called out, Time me, gentlemen, before amputating the leg and sewing up the wound in two and a half minutes. He was good. He was very good. And he seemed to take pleasure in showing up his medical colleagues by treating the poor and, and the sick that they willfully ignored and gave up as lost causes. He was generous with his abilities. He helped countless needy patients. And the survival rate of his patients was higher than many other surgeons of the time. And on top of all of this, he even found the time to pioneer some very important medical inventions, things like bulldog forceps and, and leg splints that are still in use today. So the bloke, I mean, you know, obviously he was a very talented surgeon. He also seems to have been a real medical innovator. And he also seemed to have a good heart because, as I say, he, he treated the, the, the poor and the, and the sick and the wounded people that other doctors wouldn't, wouldn't you know, bother spending any time on. However, his focus, even with his skill as a surgeon, his focus on speed would uh, it'd trip him up every now and again. For instance, with what is probably his most famous operation. And look, I have to say, there's not a huge amount of evidence that this actually did happen. It, it might have, it might not have. But whatever the case, it's definitely what Liston is most famous for today. He had a patient who required the amputation of a leg. We've talked about this, how dangerous it is. Um, and, you know, given the dangers involved in such a serious operation, if I tell you that this patient died after the surgery, well, I mean, it's sad, it's tragic, obviously, but this patient was perhaps just one of the unlucky ones. Sometimes patients die. But it's not very often that you manage to not only kill your patient, but also your surgical assistant, by accidentally slicing off three of his fingers as you hurry to perform an amputation. Liston's assistant contracted gangrene after Liston sliced off his fingers and died as a result. But it doesn't stop there, believe it or not, because it's also said that one of the observers who was there to see Liston operate stood too close to him while he was working, and as Liston hacked and slashed away at his patient, he also sliced through the clothing of the observer. This observer then went into panic, thinking himself mortally wounded, fainted, and then went on to just die of shock. So, if this operation actually did took place and isn't just apocryphal, it means that it had a 300% mortality rate. Later in life, Liston trialled some, some pioneering surgery with early forms of anaesthetic, uh, which, you know, rendered a lot of his talents as a speedy surgeon rather redundant. 
Uh, he worked with things like diethyl ether, but it wasn't long before substances like chloroform were used instead, much more effective, meaning that a surgeon didn't have to try to, you know, speed run every single operation. However, Liston didn't live to see the uh, the advent of, of medical anesthesia because he died in 1847, the very same year that chloroform was first used as a general anesthetic, rendering his talent as perhaps the quickest surgeon history has ever seen altogether and thankfully needless. The 1859 Pig War was one of the strangest conflicts in history. Disappointingly, not fought by pigs, uh, despite what the name suggests, it was actually a territorial dispute between the US and Great Britain, specifically over a couple of islands that were in the midst of the US-Canada border out on the Pacific Northwest. Now, this topic suggestion was sent in by alert listener Aaron Forsyth. Cheers very much, Aaron. It is a terrific and extremely silly tale, happily, the tale of a bloodless war. In 1846, the Americans and the British signed the Oregon Treaty. This resolved a long-standing border dispute along the west coast of North America. The treaty set the border <clears throat> along the 49th parallel of north latitude to the middle of the channel which separates the continent from Vancouver Island, and thence southerly through the middle of the said channel and of the Strait of Juan de Fuca to the Pacific Ocean. So pretty clear cut, you'd think. Except in the middle of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, there are a bunch of islands. So who do they belong to? Well, the US wanted the islands for themselves. The British wanted them as part of Canada. And so this border dispute continued, albeit on a you know much smaller scale. Throughout the 1840s, 1850s, both sides claimed all the islands and argued about it, but it never really came to anything. And there weren't very many people living on the islands, so it didn't matter that much. Both American and Canadian settlers lived on the islands and generally lived side by side in peace with their, you know, respective nations' arguments not really affecting them. That is, until the 15th of June, 1859, when 13 years to the day after the Oregon Treaty was signed, the Pig War began. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, the pig war doesn't actually involve many pigs. It, it, it involves exactly one pig, in fact, although this pig was the, the one that started the entire war and therefore gave it its name. And it was the pig that was discovered by an American farmer named Lyman Cutler. He went out into his garden on the 15th of June in 1859 and he found a pig rooting around in his garden, digging up his potatoes, eating them like there's no tomorrow. And he, look, Cutler's out of gutful. He's, he's absolutely sick of this pig. It's not the first time this has happened. He's found this pig in his garden before, and therefore he shot it and killed it. Now, you'd think, okay, how is that going to trigger a war? Well, this pig belonged to an employee of the British Hudson's Bay Company, episode 159, get across it. This bloke's name was Charles Griffin, and he was pretty bloody ropeable about his pig being killed by Lyman. Lyman offered a made not you know a reasonable offer of cash compensation for the pig. He offered him ten dollars, the equivalent of three hundred dollars these days. But Griffin said that he wanted a hundred dollars, the equivalent of three thousand dollars for a pig. Now I don't know what the market price for a you know a, a porker like that is, but certainly asking for ten times what you're offered seems a little steep. But the conflict continued between these two blokes, and when news spread of this altercation the authorities became involved. And this was where it really escalated, really ratcheted up a fair few notches because the British authorities wanted to arrest Cutler for killing this pig, but 
the American authorities wouldn't hear of it. Remember that they they both claim the island that these blokes lived on as their own territory, so neither was going to accept uh, the other nation's law enforcement coming in and dealing with this situation. So, in the grand tradition of the good old US of A, the Americans sent in the army to occupy San Juan Island, and then the British followed suit. They sent in their forces as well, and by August, both sides had hundreds of troops backed up with warships and artillery on these islands. And while there wasn't any direct fighting between the British and the Americans, it looked as though the situation would only worsen as more reinforcements were called in, all because some Irishman's pig was rooting about in the back garden of this American farmer. Thankfully, however, cooler heads prevailed. When British Rear Admiral Robert L. Baines, who was the bloke in command of the British Navy in the Pacific, he, when he, he arrived, he turned up to offer reinforcements to this brewing conflict, he looked at what was going on and he actually refused to pour fuel on the fire with the Americans, you know, because, again, they were fighting over a pig what ate some potatoes, or in the words of Baines, it was <clears throat> a squabble about a pig. And so he didn't uh, he didn't add his forces to the British presence. And, and, and thankfully, this trend of, of de-escalation continued on a broader scale. When the British and the American political leaders found, you know, in London and Washington respectively, when they found out how quickly the situation was escalating militarily, they moved to resolve the crisis faster than our mate Robert Liston could have sort a leg off because a new round of negotiations was set up and it was much more successful. A compromise was reached, splitting the Strait of Juan de Fuca right down the middle, sharing the islands between the two nations. Most of the military forces withdrew. Harmony was restored to the islands, although people probably kept a closer eye on their pigs. And the pig war effectively ended without a drop of blood being spilled, thankfully, eventually. However, in 1872, because the border dispute was ongoing, it still hadn't been resolved, despite the fact that both of these countries had pulled back a little bit vis-a-vis, you know, the deployment of heavy artillery after a pig-related incident. Um, In 1872, an international arbitration commission led by none other than German Emperor Wilhelm I uh, made a final ruling on the territorial issue and made the ruling in favour of the United States. And so today, even today, almost all the islands in the Strait of Juan de Fuca are US territory. However, on the site of on the historical site of the 1859 British military camp, where the British set up, you know, in readiness to fight this pig war with uh, with, with blood, sweat, and tears, US park rangers still hoist the Union Jack at this site every day making it one of the few places in the US that American government employees hoist the flag of another nation. Funnily enough, we've actually already talked a little bit about this next topic before on Half Ass History. Long-time listeners will remember episode 12, The K-Class Submarines, Get Across It, and how uh, early on in that episode, I mentioned one of the first military submarines, the H.L. Hunley. And I talked about how it sank three times, killed a bunch of people, and generally didn't work all that well, although it did sink a Union ship. The first time in history that a ship was sunk by a, a military submarine. Well, that brief aside in episode 12, where we talked about the Hunley a little bit, but that wasn't enough for alert listener with the um, <clears throat> interesting name of Chode Handley, who requested the full story of the H.L. Hunley, and so here it is for you, Chode. The Hunley was built in 1863 during the American Civil War, and uh, unfortunately it was built for the bad guys. It was built by the Confederates. 
submarines weren't completely new at this point, but during the American Civil War, both the Union and the Confederates were seeking to harness the potential of the submarine more specifically as a military vessel. And so they developed subs designed for combat. Uh, the Confederates built a few prototypes, but none were particularly successful when tested. They just sank. And I mean, look, a, a submarine is admittedly supposed to sink, but the important part about, a, you know, an effective submarine is after it sinks, it can then desink and that wasn't really something the Confederates had nailed at this point, and a lot of their initial prototypes were lost for good. But in 1863, the Hunley was built, a 12-metre-long, 7-ton iron cylinder, uh, the diameter of which, uh, the internal of the internal of the, of the roughly round hull, was 1.3 metres, which is plenty of room for, you know, an 8-year-old to stand up in. It was outfitted with watertight hatches that led to this, you know, truly spacious interior, a hand-cranked propulsion system. They had tried to get steam and electric engines inside of these submarines, and they just didn't bloody work, so they had to crank the uh, crank the submarine's uh, propulsion system by hand. Um, it had ballast tanks that could be flooded or emptied to control depth, and even a state-of-the-art emergency flotation device that involved, this is not a joke, unscrewing heavy iron weights from the side or the bottom of the hull that would quickly lighten the boat. And, you know, I was going to make, I was gonna make a, a gag about that, but that's actually pretty bloody smart, making weights that you could uh, unscrew from the inside of the boat so they would fall off and sink away and therefore add buoyancy to the ship. That's uh, to the boat, I should say. That's, um, yeah, that's pretty clever. Anyway, more important than any of these features, of course, was the armaments of the... Well, I say, I say armaments, <clears throat> armament... It was armed with, I guess, what we could very generously call a torpedo. Um, but generally, we think of torpedoes as being fired from a submarine, shot out from the front of them. Uh, this one, however, it was a little different because rather than shooting a torpedo forward, the Hunley, again, not a joke, held its torpedo in front of it on a wooden pole, like someone removing a bug from the kitchen with a broom. The idea was that this submarine would sail towards a ship with the to torpedo out in front, ram the ship, uh, which would detonate the torpedo's explosives and blow a great big hole in the ship and sink it. However, the pole was only 6.7 metres long. And as anyone who has ever removed a spider from a house with a broom will know, it doesn't ever really feel long enough, does it? So all you had to do with the Hunley, I guess, was get into this cramped underwater cigar, sweat away at the hand-turned propulsion crank system in stifling conditions, bump into an enemy ship and hope that a seven-metre pole keeps you far enough away from the explosion. Easy. And, oh, by the way, while hoping that, you know, you're doing this while also hoping that the submarine doesn't sink for any other number of reasons before you manage to make it to the enemy ship, so no worries. But if there was one thing that the Hunley was good at doing, it was sinking. Uh, on what would have been its first test dive on the 29th of August 1863. It didn't even make it as far as diving because before they could begin the diving uh, sequence, the captain accidentally hit the diving controls while one of the hatches was open. And as the submarine uh, dove beneath the waves, it flooded the vessel uh, as it submerged with an open hatch and killed five of the seven crew aboard. Oops. And believe it or not, this happened again. Uh, I mean, again, I've said submarines are supposed to sink but they are supposed to then emerge safely to the surface and the Hunley was good at the first part needed needed some work on the second part uh it certainly didn't happen on the 15th of October 
uh, when the Hunley, uh, the Hunley was salvaged after the August incident. It was then put to sea a few months later and it promptly, promptly sank straight away and didn't re-emerge and killed all eight crew members aboard. So again, oops. Third time's the charm, you might think. Again, the Confederates, they raised the Hunley from the briny depths. They fixed it up. And then in February 1864, they finally deployed it offensively against the Union. On the night of the 17th of February, the Hunley was sent to break the naval blockade of the city of Charleston. And so it snuck out under the cover of darkness to attack a ship called the USS Housatonic. Under the cover of darkness, the Hunley stealthily made its way out towards this US warship with its torpedo armed and ready to go on the end of this 6.7 metre pole out the front of it. It rammed into the side of the Housatonic and the torpedo detonated, sending an explosion through the ship and damaging it so heavily that the Housatonic was consigned to Davy Jones' locker. And as you may have guessed as well, it turns out that the 6.7 metre pole wasn't long enough to protect the Hunley or its crew from the explosion, and so it too sank along with the Housatonic. So hardly the demonstration of naval superiority that the Confederates were hoping to achieve here, and to make matters worse, this time they couldn't raise the Hunley like they had previously. So the HL Hunley remained at the bottom of the sea, lost to history after its embarrassing string of sinkings, until the late 20th century. It's still disputed uh, who exactly rediscovered the wreck and when they did, but the wreck of the boat was finally raised from the water on the 8th of August, 2,136 years after its ill-fated attack on the Housatonic. It's been restored, and you can go and see the Hunley even today in the city of Charleston, although, from what I could see, they have taken the torpedo pole off the front. And now, exalted listener, what is perhaps the most requested half-assed history topic of all time, the story of the British army officer who fought in the Second World War with a longbow and a broadsword, Jack Churchill. So many listeners have requested this story, Kevin Wang, Michael, Donovan Day, James Goodwin, Rob Hanton, heaps of other people as well, and here it is, at long last, the story of a man known to history as Fighting Jack Churchill, or perhaps more appropriately, Mad Jack Churchill. Jack Churchill was born in British Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka, and he grew up to join the military as an officer serving in Burma uh, during the interwar period. But he was, as it turns out, a man of many talents, not just someone who was uh, going to spend their, their life as a military man. Before the outbreak of the Second World War, Churchill left the army and did... Uh, Honestly, he did all sorts of ridiculous stuff. He went to Kenya, where he worked as a newspaper editor. Okay, sure, fair enough, pretty boring. As well as a male model. Although there's no record of him interacting in any way with the Prime Minister of Malaysia throughout this period, nor did he set up a school for kids who can't read good, or one for ants, for that matter. He also did some acting, appearing in a 1938 film called A Yank at Oxford. This wasn't actually even his debut on the big screen, however, as it had a minor role in a 1924 film called The Thief of Baghdad, where he both played the pipes and showed off his prowess with archery. Speaking of both of these things, bagpipes and, uh, and, and bows and arrows... In 1938, he came second in a major piping competition, so he was obviously, you know, pretty hot on the old bagpipes. And then in 1939, the next year, he represented the UK at the World Archery Championships. 
So he's what? He's a fighter slash ranger slash bard multi-class monstrosity. This bloke has tried a bit of everything, it seems, but all of his all of these various careers that he'd struck out into, acting and modeling and archery and all the rest of it, it all came to a stop, of course, in 1939 with the outbreak of the Second World War. He rejoined the British Army and he was deployed to France, where he took to the battlefield as a very, very eager soldier with, believe it or not, a longbow and a Scottish broadsword as well as his trusty bagpipes, and he wielded all three in various encounters with the enemy, using his sword to signal his men to attack, inspiring them with his piping as they charged. He fought in France and Norway and Italy, and honestly, his chosen fighting style was actually surprisingly effective. Uh, his bow was very, very a very, very useful weapon. Uh, he was a highly skilled archer, and the bow was completely silent and very effective at long range. He could, I mean, he killed people at 200 meters with this thing. And uh, as for hand-to-hand fighting, well, he brought a broadsword into battle. I mean, once in Italy, he actually lost his sword in hand-to-hand fighting against the Nazis, and he had to go back and 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 to go, return to the battlefield later on and, and retrieve it. His motto was said to have been, <clears throat> "Any officer who goes into action without his sword." is improperly dressed, and he he really did seem to have stuck to that. After, de- after being deployed to the Balkans in 1944, he continued in very much the same vein, you know, bow, sword and pipes, until he was finally captured and taken as a prisoner of war by the Nazis. It says that he was playing his pipes as the Nazis approached and was knocked unconscious by a grenade that flew near him. He didn't stop the, pipe, uh, the piping to try to get away from it, and therefore was taken prisoner. Now, the Nazis taking this bloke Jack Churchill as prisoner, they're thinking, well, hang on one second, maybe he's related to Winston Churchill. Maybe we're going to be able to use him as this very important high-profile prisoner. And so they put him in a, a prisoner of war camp near Berlin for these high-profile prisoners. And would you like to guess what he did? He escaped, of course. Uh, I mean, as if there was ever going to be anything else that he did. He dug a tunnel under the prison camp, and once he was free, he attempted to walk north to, to the Baltic Sea, which is, you know... 200 kilometres from Berlin to, you know, the north coast there. But yeah, he walked almost the entire way before unfortunately being recaptured just a few kilometres from the coast and he was imprisoned once again in another Nazi prisoner of war camp. But in April 14, uh, 1945, as the, as the Nazi war effort began to crumble, he was released and he walked this time south, uh, 150 kilometres into Italy, where he met US troops and was taken to safety. But... He wasn't finished yet, because of course the war in the Pacific was still raging on, and so he sped back to Burma, where he'd been earlier as a younger man, to keep fighting, and was apparently rather disappointed when the war actually finished. He was known to have said, if it wasn't for those damn Yanks, we could have kept the war going another 10 years. But without a war to fight, Churchill retrained as a parachutist, and he secured a deployment this time to British Palestine, where he continued fighting, although... In this conflict, I don't know if he fought with a sword and a bow there. A bit, bit bloody dangerous having them with a parachute. Sharp, sharp-edged weapons around parachutes, not the sort of thing you might want. But then in 1952, he finally retired from active service and made another film appearance as an actor, this time as an archer in the film Ivanhoe. So I think it's fair to say that Churchill did a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense throughout his life. Uh, But in his later years, I have to say, he made a decision that it is impossible to argue was a bad one. He moved to Australia. Greatest place on earth, mate. 
And in Australia, he took up surfing, uh, a hobby that he held on to after moving back to the UK. He designed his own surfboard and uh, and kept surfing even back in the you know bloody miserable beaches in in, uh, in Britain. Um, uh, and finally, finally, he retired for good this time in 1959. But there's one final story I want to tell you about him, uh, and, and this one doesn't involve swords or bows or bagpipes or even surfing. Churchill, uh, after moving back to the UK, he got a desk job with the army, and he would travel by train to this job. And uh, when he did so on his way back home, at one point on each of these homeward journeys, he would stand up, he would open the train window, and he would hurl his briefcase out of it at great speed. And obviously the passengers and the conductors are looking at him going, what the bloody hell is this, is, is this bloke doing? They would say, mate, you've just chucked your briefcase out the window. What are you doing? He would explain to them that he was throwing the briefcase out of the window into his backyard as the train passed it so he wouldn't have to carry it home after getting off at the next station. Jack Churchill died in 1996 at the age of 89, and he left behind two sons, one of whom described him as a peace-loving and unassuming man. I mean, based on that, it sounds like his son was just as mad as Jack himself, to be honest. Everyone's heard of Adidas, of course, the famous sporting brand, and you've probably heard of Puma as well, another well-known manufacturer of sporting equipment. But did you know that these two companies were actually founded by brothers whose bitter rivalry split their hometown in two? Alert listener Craig sent in this topic, and you'll soon see why. The success of both of these now global brands goes all the way back to 1919 in the German town of Herzogenaurach. In 1919, two brothers, Adolf Adi and Rudolf Rudi Dassler, they established a shoemaking company together, which they, uh, which they named Gebruder Dassler Schuhfabrik, which means the, the Brothers Dassler Shoe Factory, and they called it Gida for short, as in Gebruder Dassler, Gida. Now, Gida was a very successful brand. Uh, famously, Gita provided US Olympian Jesse Owens with the shoes he won his gold medals in at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. However, Gita had to stop making shoes despite its uh, its success in, in the industry, of course, with the outbreak of the Second World War. And I'm very sorry to say that both Dassler brothers were very willing supporters of the Nazi war effort. Rudy, uh, Rudy was drafted and he went off to fight and the Gita shoe factory was repurposed to make weapons for the Nazi military, making things like bazookas. But when, uh, towards the end of the war, when Herzog and Alrak was, uh, was captured by the Allies, they, they came across this, this factory that you know, seemed like a legitimate military target and were, were, they were considering blowing it sky high. But eventually they were talked out of doing this by Artie's wife, Kita, who told them that it was just a shoe factory. But coming out of the Second World War, Gita didn't last too long. Uh, as I say, both of these brothers had been they'd been rather enthusiastic Nazis, unfortunately, and, and they realised that they had a lot to lose during the denazification process. They could have lost their businesses and their wealth and all that sort of stuff. And so what they did was turn on each other, seeking to denounce the other brother as the as the real culprit, the real one who had been the you know the 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 died in the wall Nazi, and and this. 
didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, these two, th- there had been some simmering tensions between the two of them for, for a number of a uh, number of years, particularly during the war years. And it wasn't just because of business disagreements and uh, and that sort of thing. There were some very personal uh, grievances that the brothers had with each other. For instance, um, Rudy suspected Adi had actually organised Rudy's conscription to get him away from the factory during the war years, while Adi suspected Rudy of sleeping with his wife. So in 1948, as a result of this ongoing tension between these two brothers, it all came a gutzer. The brothers fell out, fell out irreparably and Gita was split in two. Each brother took half of the company for themselves. Rudy founded a company initially named Ruda, short for Rudolf Dassler, while Adi, of course, founded, can you guess, Adidas. Adi Dassler, Adidas. And with the split of this company, so too, interestingly, did their town, Herzogenaurach. It also split. Gita had been a major employer in Herzogenaurach, and people in the town were divided by their loyalty to one of the respective brothers. And this division, it ran along geographic lines, depending on you know whose factory you were closer to, but also political and even religious lines. Rudy's Puma factory on the south side of the river uh, was seen as a place for Catholic and conservative people, while Adi's Adidas factory was to the north, and it was seen as Protestant and, and social democrat. Herzogenaurach was completely divided by the few. Depending on whose side you took, you'd you you know you'd only go to certain bars, certain shops, even certain hairdressers. People would look down at the brand of shoe that other people were wearing before interacting with them. So fierce and heated was this rivalry between the two. And despite, well, I mean, not despite, I think in many ways, because of this, uh, this red-hot rivalry, both companies flourished. Both sought after high-profile endorsements. Adidas got people like Muhammad Ali. Puma scored the, uh, the, the endorsement of the Brazilian nation, national soccer team. But it was, as you've no doubt guessed, it was Adi and his company that pulled ahead, particularly after the West German uh, national soccer team wore Adidas shoes with innovative screw-in studs to the 1954 FIFA World Cup, which, of course, as all sports ball fans know, they won while wearing Adidas shoes. A huge victory for not only West Germany, but also for the Adidas brand. And today in the 21st century, Adidas is definitely the dominant brand, and, and the bitter rivalry seems to have been won by Adi, not Rudy. Neither company is owned by the descendants of the brothers these days, but right through to their death in the 1970s, the two of them remained completely estranged, so much so that when they were buried, their bodies were interred at opposite ends of the Herzogenaurak Cemetery. They never managed to set aside their differences and make up. Or so the story goes. Because there were rumours, whispered, secretive rumours, that the brothers did indeed reconcile before Rudy's death in 1974. Although, if true, this reconciliation took place in the greatest of secrecy. But why, you might ask? Why all the secrecy? Why keep such an incredible story, reconciliation, after all these years? Why keep it secret? Because these two brands were built around hating each other. And if their respective founders turned around and made up after all these years, it would have been terrible for business.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the 200th episode of Half-Assed History. And there's only really one thing that I want to say to you for listening to this episode and any other episodes that you've listened to in the nearly four years I've been making this dumb podcast. Whether this is your first episode or your 200th episode, I want to say thanks so bloody much, mate, for being here. Honestly, I... I started Half-Assed History as a way to keep my eye in with, you know, with the discipline I uselessly studied at university. It was a creative project that I decided to begin for me and something that I never really anticipated or expected or even really hoped would take off. But today, thousands of listeners, just like you, tune in every week to hear me talk nonsense about, you know, whatever I've been reading about on Wikipedia that week. And uh, I just want to thank you for for being one of those people. So here's to another 100 episodes. Here's to another 200 episodes. I mean, as long as the topics keep coming in, I'll keep churning these podcasts out. So thanks for being here. Anyway, got to plug all the boring housekeeping stuff here. Just because it's a special episode doesn't mean you don't get that. So halfhousehistory.net, contact form there. You can find links to the merch shop and, of course, the Patreon if you want access to stuff like uh, uncut episodes, behind the, behind the scenes stuff, show notes, whatever else. And, of course, number one, please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent, because that's the best way to make this show grow. Thanks to people leaving um, uh, reviews on iTunes and Spotify and what have you. A big thank you to the Patreons who have been keeping me just swimming in cash for so, so long. It is a huge spur to my flank in getting this done every week, so I appreciate, appreciate you all much more than I can say. And even if you're not a Patreon supporter, I still appreciate the support you offer me just by tuning in each week. So I'll see you back here for episode 201. And I'm looking forward to your company as we get into more absurd, silly, ridiculous, and sometimes informative and educational history as well. Keep those topic suggestions coming in via the contact form on the website. And I'll see you back here next week for more Half-Ass History. Until then, I forgot. To, oh, my goodness. I actually forgot to look up a question on, on Reddit. I, I, I seriously did. I don't have a dismount for this. This, yeah. Okay, well, that's episode 200, baby. Half-assed all the way. Half-assed.